Good morning. <clears throat> Good morning to all of you, and a welcome to this uh, morning of worship together. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, and we'll continue our study of this book. I tremendously appreciate both the, the songs uh, that were selected and then, Brother Bruce, for reading these passages of Scripture, we have some context uh, for the message this morning. Uh, first, in the songs that were sung, and how, how Christ was portrayed uh, beautifully as the one who went to the cross. And we have, we have a reference to uh, the crucifixion in the passage here today. And, and there's a, a bit of a paradox in its reference, in that it says, uh, talks about the one who was crucified, and the very next line it calls him the Lord of glory. And I think the songs wrestle well with that, with that paradox, that the master, the consummate person of glory is hanging on a cross bleeding and dying, which is the probably most shameful death any human being can die. And yet the Lord of glory and whatever all that entails is dying, mangled, bleeding, suffering on a cross. And in that, in that great paradox, we have the message of the gospel, the good news that Paul has told the Corinthians here in chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2 is that message is at the very center of what he proclaimed to the Corinthians and that the church today is to continue to proclaim and is to be the very center of the message of the church. <coughs> now, I'll be honest with you. Uh, this passage, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16, is not a passage I would just choose as something to uh, preach a sermon on. I have wrestled with this passage for weeks. And it's got some tough stuff in it. And what I find particularly intriguing is that what Paul is, is studying and explaining in great complexity and with great philosophical insight is about something very simple. And that is that Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, died on a cross and was raised again. And it is by trusting him that God is going to put the world back to rights. Everything that's broken about the world, everything that's broken about us, God is somehow going to fix because Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And I think we might say here today that all of us somehow believe that. But I wonder sometimes if we actually believe it. I wonder sometimes if I actually believe it. We encounter trouble in the world all the time. We encounter trouble in our own hearts. We encounter trouble in our relationships. We see a broken world. We see a world that's in desperate state. Do you believe and do I believe that somehow... Because Jesus died on the cross and rose again, God is going to use 
faith and confidence in him, in that person of Jesus, to sort all this back out. Is it really that simple? Can it really be that simple? Is God really that kind of God? And that's the question Paul is addressing here uh, in this passage. The problem is, the way he addresses it, is very complex. And we know that God has an infinite mind. He is an infinite being. And somehow this infinite one has communicated to us finite creatures in ways that we're supposed to be able to wrap our minds around things. And it's fairly obvious here that Paul wrapped his mind around this one. And he's trying to communicate to the church at Corinth so that they can wrap their minds around it. And I think my mind has a little less uh, infinity in it than the Apostle Paul's did. And I know that some of you may likely struggle here today with your finite minds. And some of you will say, oh, come on, don't you get that? I see it perfectly. And I'm going to ask for your assistance at the end uh, where I have continued to struggle. I have uh, repeatedly said that Scripture and the truth of God in a sense, it's very simple. But in order to understand it, we walk through complex pathways of questioning and struggle and insight. And yet we need to come out to a new simplicity, a place where the old simple is now full color, but it's still really simple. And I'll be honest with you, with this passage, I'm not sure if I've gotten to the new simplicity yet. So... I do want you to bring your questions, either during the service at the end or afterwards. If you have questions that are unanswered, uh, which I'm sure there will be some, and you have the courage and vocabulary to talk about them, uh, I want to invite that. I think there are some, some significant truths here that need to radically shape not only the way we think about the gospel and Christianity, but how we actually live. And we're going to conclude the sermon by talking about a cruciform way of life. And simply stated, or more simply stated, a, a life that is shaped by the cross. So whether you're a teacher, or a pastor, or a homemaker, or a student, or a builder, and you embrace the message of Christ as the means by which God is going to set the world to rights. And then you go out and work as a teacher, a homemaker, a builder, a pastor, a donut fryer, a baker. You, you name your vocation. There is a particularly, there's a particular way that we do those things that is shaped by the cross. And we need to ask ourselves the question, does my daily work as a businessman or as a teacher look like it's been shaped by the cross? Am I a cruciform welder or carpenter? Am I a cruciform teacher? Am I a cruciform parent or student? That's... That's where this passage wraps up.
The context here, the church at Corinth is riddled with divisions and fragmentation. People are taking sides. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. And the messengers have taken priority to the person of the message. And Paul is telling the church at Corinth very clearly, this is a problem. This is not how the church was established. He said, I was there, the church was established through the preaching of the cross of Christ. These other people didn't die for you. These other people weren't raised for you. It was Jesus. And unless he is at the very center of your faith and of your community, then it cannot truly be called Christian. And then in the first part of chapter 2, he very clearly and plainly demonstrates that it is the continued proclamation of this simple good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross and was raised again to put all the brokenness of the world back to rights. It's the proclamation of that simple message that is the primary task of the church. So anything the church does must be informed by that simple good news. Anything the church says or teaches or preaches or practices must be given its shape by the proclamation of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it must be consistent with the fact that Jesus dying and being raised again is the means by which God is going to put the world back to rights. Otherwise, we are not proclaiming the message that the church was intended to proclaim. Now, I've entitled the message, God's Secrets Disclosed, and I introduced the idea to the children down in the assembly. Uh, I think all of us as parents or teachers or adults, and probably children as well, no one excluded, have had secrets. We have sometimes carefully crafted plans in our minds and maybe even acquired gifts. And we have kept the lid on it very, very tightly because it's incredibly important that the secret is disclosed at, our, at the time and place and means or methods of our own choosing. And if it leaks, there's a problem. There's some disappointment. But when we have that secret, and then at the right time and in precisely the way we had planned, we disclose the secret... There are some powerful things that can happen. Okay, and I'm thinking about, of course, birthdays and Christmas events and even such things as engagements and all kinds of human activities. Wrapped up in secrecy, disclosed at strategic times in certain ways for particular effects. But we don't often think of God in that way. And yet this passage clearly said that God had a secret and he held it very closely, and it did not leak. Nobody got it, even though he gave a lot of hints. Nobody got it until he was ready to fully disclose it. And this passage tells us he kept the secret very well. It tells us how he disclosed it and to whom he disclosed it and the effects of that disclosure. Say, God had a secret. How did he disclose it? To whom did he disclose it, and what were the effects of that disclosure? Be reading. I'd like to go ahead and read the entire chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. 
And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that, and I add the word so, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. I want you to catch this which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things... God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things. He is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, in your infinite wisdom, you prepared a plan and disclosed it in your time and your way. Give us today of your spirit so that we may discern spiritual truths and so have the mind of Christ. We ask this in the name of Christ, your son. Amen. In the previous passages, the Apostle Paul has clearly ruled out what he calls human wisdom as the means by which we can know God and his reconciling work in the world. But now he states here that there is another wisdom. There is a wisdom that the Apostle Paul is going to teach. There is a wisdom that he's going to proclaim. And this wisdom he imparts to the mature. He gives to those who are Mature. The King James, I think, uses the word perfect. 
And that has caused a significant difficulty in our modern day. The idea of perfect or mature here does not imply that there is a there are two different tiers of Christianity, that there are those who are Christians but they're not perfect, there are people who are Christians but are not mature, but rather it is those who are spiritually reborn and those who are not. So those who are mature are those who have been made alive, have been quickened by the power of the Spirit, and now belong to God the Father through the reconciling work of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not about some who are highly intellectual and others who are not. This is not about <coughs> some who have received kind of the basic understandings of Christianity, but have never gone on to understand the more complex or even, as some people claim, special knowledge. That was rejected as a form of Gnosticism. Christianity does not require some kind of super-knowledge to become a super-Christian. It is rather the, if the gospel made effective in the life that makes us mature and like Christ. So this wisdom from God is something that Christians possess. All Christians, all who are followers of Jesus, are these mature in this passage. That does not mean that those who are perfect in Christ, who are positionally in Christ, are grown up as much as they ought to be. It doesn't mean that we understand all we need to understand. But these mature have been made alive, and so have the Spirit of God. They are now what this passage refers to as spiritual people as opposed to natural people. So the natural wisdom does not agree with spiritual wisdom. Now this wisdom, the nature of this wisdom, Paul says is also not of this age. So the wisdom of God that he is preaching, that he is proclaiming, that he is giving to the spiritually awakened is not simply the product of the latest, the greatest, and the brightest. It's not the product of those who think best in our time. It's simply God's truth that he has disclosed. And he says it was God decreed. God decreed this before the ages. So before there was a first sparkle of created light, before the universe was brought into existence by our Creator God, this plan, this wisdom, was fully developed in God's mind. Before the first spark of light broke forth, before the first green shoot broke out of the ground, before the first tiny little critter began to walk across the planet, before the smallest little fish began to swim in the seas, before the first human being was created, God had this plan fully developed in his mind. And he knew it perfectly. He knew it well. This wisdom of God is that kind of wisdom. It is not a fad. It is not a modern idea. 
nor a postmodern idea. Neither is it a classical idea, nor a Renaissance idea. It's ageless. It was God's before ages existed. He also says this wisdom is not of the rulers of this age. Now, who are those rulers? Well, we know that some of these rulers that he references are Jewish leaders. So they were religious leaders of God's chosen people who lived at the time of Jesus the Messiah. And he says, the wisdom of God is not necessarily what they had. It is not Roman ideas. So the Romans were present. The Romans were part of condemning Jesus to death. This was not a Roman's idea. It was not a popular idea with the Romans of that day or the Greeks that preceded them. Now, it talks about these rulers, and some people think that it means spiritual rulers. And so we have God who is a spiritual ruler and his angels, uh, the hierarchy of angels, the arch archangels, Gabriel. It's, there's also a counterpart of evil in the world. Satan and his cohorts, people who follow him. There's no direct reference here, I believe, to that spiritual realm in the wisdom of man or natural wisdom. And yet, everyone who is not a part of God's kingdom while doing their own thing, is also somehow influenced and is a part of that spiritual realm. So the natural perspective, the natural realm, uh, does flesh itself out in human beings, and it's somewhat monitored, somewhat acted, people are acted upon by spiritual beings. So there is no earthly activity that is completely devoid of spiritual influence, whether... God's kingdom, or the natural realm. But this wisdom that he's talking about is not a product of that part of the created world. In fact, he says, the actions of the rulers of this age, so the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, the actions in which they crucified Christ clearly demonstrate they didn't understand what God was doing. They didn't know. They didn't have a clue what God's plan was in Jesus Christ. They didn't get it. He says, or they would not have crucified Jesus. So the secret of God's plan is that his son, Jesus Christ, would be incarnate in human flesh, would die on a cross and would be raised again, and through that glorious gospel, God would put the world back to rights. And they did not get it. They didn't know it. God kept it a secret. A perfectly kept secret. I think it's safe to say the disciples even who walked with Jesus didn't get it. They didn't make sense out of it. They could not make sense out of it. Why? Well, we see later why. Because it is only received in a certain way. And it is never received until God 
discloses it. And God has disclosed it. But then something else has to happen in the recipients in order for them to get it. And this had not yet happened in the disciples of Jesus. So they watched Jesus being crucified. They witnessed him being raised from the dead. And guess what? They still didn't get it. Why? Because God had not yet disclosed his secret. They saw the historical events of Jesus being a young man, living his life productively on earth, performing miracles, going to the cross and dying, then being raised from the dead. And they actually saw him ascend into heaven, and they still didn't get it. They still didn't understand. Why not? Because God had not yet disclosed it. He was keeping it a secret. So why in the world would God do that? For thousands of years, God is keeping this closely held secret. But it seems that's what he's doing. He's keeping it a closely held secret. And the world is crucifying Jesus. Because they don't understand him either. They are natural men looking at things through their own lenses and they don't get it. They don't understand. Besser has said, the world is world. Wherever the world lets out its real self in its leaders, there Christ is killed. In Jerusalem and Rome. Everywhere. Always. I think many people think of Jesus as a very nice teacher. Many people who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, they read about Jesus and they think, hey, he's a great man. We'd love to have him around. You know, we wish he was here in our day to heal and touch and, and make people feel good about themselves. And when we get hungry, to feed us. But those who are not spiritually discerning will kill Christ. It counters, his message counters human wisdom. So the world, wherever it exists, when it lets itself out in its leaders, there Christ is killed. This wisdom was hidden. It remained a mystery. And it was only disclosed strategically in time and place. In another part of Scripture, Paul says, in the fullness of time, Christ came. We could also say in the fullness of time, at the right moment, when the story was in its right phase, God tells his secret. And it's hidden so well, the Apostle Paul says here, and he quotes from Isaiah, two different, probably two different passages, kind of compiles it uh, together. It's hidden so well, he says, that from ancient time on, no one has heard, no one has perceived, no eye has seen a God 
except this God who will act on behalf of those who wait on him. For those who rest their hope in him. So this passage, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That is speaking not so much about ultimate heaven. It's speaking about the mystery of God's plan, which of course includes how he's going to put all these things back to rights. But he has hidden it so well that from the ancient times, there is nobody who has, in the imagination of their hearts and minds, come up with a God who takes care of people, who redeems people. And all they do is cast themselves on him and trust him. There's no other God like that. Nobody has ever come up with that brilliant idea. And yet that's God's plan. That's God's secret. And his secret that he was holding was that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all those who cast themselves on him, that death and resurrection makes effective their renewal their new creation. And God takes care of those who cast themselves on him. No one had dreamed up a God like that. God had to disclose himself. He had to disclose his secret. From of old, no one had ever heard of such a thing. And then why was he going to do this? And this is the line that may be just a tad shocking. And he says, he decreed this plan before the ages for our glory. We thought it was for God's glory. Well, when we are glorified because of God's work that he does, just because we rest in him and cast ourselves in him, and we are made beautiful and true and holy and good, who is ultimately glorified, but God himself. And yet God decreed this plan from ages past for our glory. For our glory. For the purpose of mankind being made into the image of his Son. For our redemption, for our reconciliation, for our restoration, and for our final glorification. Incidentally, what most leaders seek, and even the ones that he mentions here who didn't get God's secret and who in fact crucified Christ because they didn't know what God was doing, what most leaders want, both thought leaders, intellectuals in the academy, religious leaders, political leaders, educators, what they want is our glory. They want mankind to get things right, to get things better. They want a better society. They want, they want themselves in a better position and a better light than they previously have been. So Paul says in other places that we're all seeking our own glory. What's interesting, says part of God's secret is that he wants your glory too. He wants you to be glorified. But the way we seek it naturally 
is so antithetical to the way God seeks it. And the secret God discloses here is how we can be glorified. And how can we be glorified? By surrendering ourselves, by giving up ourselves to this Jesus who died on the cross and was raised again. That's how. We must embrace the way of the cross. And yet nobody imagined a means like this that God would use to sort out a broken, messed up world. And yet before he created anything in the world, he had the plan fully in place. And then he disclosed it when he was ready. And how did he disclose it? The mystery of God, the secret of God that was hidden for ages is now revealed to us. And I think here Paul particularly speaks of us as in apostles. Revealed to us by his spirit. He goes on later to say it's the very same way that all people receive it. But God, first of all, discloses it to the apostles, to those who are there, I think, in the upper room. And it is the Spirit of God that communicates God's wisdom. Now, he makes a fairly uh, intricate argument here as to why God's Spirit would be the one to disclose that. And the reason God's Spirit can disclose it is because nobody knows What's going on inside of us, he says, except our spirit. So you don't know my internal wranglings. You don't know my motivations. You don't know what I struggle with and reach for. And the truth of the matter is I don't even always. But my spirit knows it more fully than anyone. And so God also has spirit, and it is the spirit of God who knows the very thoughts of God. And the language used here says the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. But our idea of searching is quite different than this. When we search something out, we start piling up clues until suddenly it all comes together and we say, aha, I got it. This is not that kind of searching, but rather references one timeless act where the Holy Spirit sounds the infinite depths of God and comes to perfect and full comprehension of the thoughts, motivations, the plan of God, the intentions of God. He's just got it all. So the Holy Spirit fully comprehends and understands the inner workings of God. So he's qualified. He's qualified, fully qualified to disclose God's hidden secrets. And how does he do that? He communicates it to us. But we are natural. And here's where the problem comes in. We cannot receive. We cannot receive the wisdom of God. And so there's a problem. The natural man cannot receive the wisdom of God. So God has to give us something to equip us to receive. And 
He graciously gives us that gift. And he doesn't say what it is. And he doesn't say how he does it. And this has mystified theologians for 2,000 years. And they've debated it as into what order and what that gift is, what it is that God does in humanity. And they disagree. They still can't get it together. They still can't come to a common consensus. But what we know is that God gives humanity something so that they can receive the secret mystery of God given to them by the Holy Spirit. God's infinite wisdom is given. He prepares us to receive it. And when we receive it, we have, as he says in the end, the mind of Christ. Now, I, I've been blowing circuits over this for weeks. Okay, and I've tried to reread it and tried to read it other ways, and it's just, that's what I think it says. And it's hard. But you know what? I have also worshipped deeply that God would do that for us. Not only that he would send Jesus, but that before he even created us, he knew the awful mess that was going to take place in his created world. And so he doesn't first create us and then try to quickly think through, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, what am I going to do to fix this, to salvage what I've got flying to pieces here in front of me. See, that's how we think. And that's how most of us live our lives. So many things happen to us, and then we're frantically trying to figure out, what am I going to do with this now? How am I going to sort this out? Oh, God's not like that. He had the plan in place, hangs on to the secret, keeps it pretty tight. And once the whole plan is fully disclosed, etched in history, time, space, people can verify these incidents occurred, then he sends his spirit, and the spirit opens up the eyes of those who could have never imagined a God who would act like this in the world. And it's amazing. Who could have dreamed of a God doing that? But he said, hey, that's what I did. That's what I've done. That's who I am. I've kept it close. There it is, on display for you to see. But guess what? The natural man who does not have the Spirit of God looks at that and says, You what? You claim that because 2,000 years ago, this guy got crosswise with both religious and political authorities, got himself crucified, and a bunch of his followers claim that, Hey, by the way, he rose from the dead. You claim that somehow that is going to be responsible for fixing your relationships, for fixing your inner turmoil, for dealing with your depression, for dealing with your discouragement, for dealing with your fear, for dealing with the hostility in the world, for dealing with the fact that human beings die, that human beings struggle with cancer, that human beings have brain tumors. You look back at that and somehow derive hope and confidence from a guy that 2,000 years ago got crosswise with the government, was crucified, claimed he raised, was raised from the dead, 
And you what? It's foolishness. Absolute foolishness to the natural man. But he has disclosed it to us. He says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. And he makes two statements here. He says he does not because it's foolishness to him. It's a bunch of prattle. It's just a bunch of silliness. So the natural man simply does not take in that message. But it also says he cannot. He does not and he cannot. And he is not able to because they are spiritually discerned. They are not naturally understood. And if in fact we are dead spiritually, then we cannot. And he says, we cannot. So God must do something. The natural man lacks both, and I use these two terms borrowed, lacks both the faculty and the organ for receiving and knowing. Doesn't have it. Just as a blind man cannot see the blazing sun outside, so this natural man cannot see the sun of righteousness. Just as a deaf man cannot hear the beautiful music, so he cannot hear and appreciate the music of the gospel. But he contrasts that the spiritual man is able to discern, distinguish, receive, Appreciate, embrace, love, trust. And here is one of the most remarkable things in this passage. It says that he is able to do this in all things. All things. That's a pretty incredible statement. The spiritual man, who Paul says in the very closing verse, has the mind of Christ, because it has been born in him, is able to judge and exercise discernment in all things. So, in business, in cooking, in childcare, in parenting, in teaching, in flying, in nursing, in building, in sweeping floors, the spiritual man has been gifted with the mind of Christ so that he can exercise this discernment, this knowing, this probing, this evaluating. He's able to do it in whatever situation he comes into. It's pretty incredible. He's able to distinguish and arrive at true assessments, true values, because he has both the organ and the faculty. Now, is it fully developed? No. But he has it. And if you have the mind of Christ, you have the faculty and the organ, you have the capacity and the ability to
to exercise that kind of discernment in all things. Now, he uses a very, very skillful item or tool of logic here to arrive at the closing verse. And here's the major premise. No one knows the Lord's mind and instructs him. Okay, and that's, that's an assumed. So none of us claim to know God, and, and the psalmist and throughout the Bible it's repeatedly said this, no one knows God in such a way that they're actually qualified to teach God. I mean, the term God and be instructed just don't fit on the same page. If you need to be instructed, you're not God. And if you're God, well, then you have infinite knowledge. Being instructed is just not in the vocabulary. Okay, it's just not an option. So that's the major premise. No one knows the Lord's mind, and so no one can instruct him. The minor premise is, okay, if you're a spiritual man, you have the mind of Christ. Because he has revealed it to us. The conclusion is, and this one can rattle some bushes, okay? It rattled me. The conclusion then has to be, so no one can instruct, no probe, and judge us and evaluate or write what we are and have. And that's the last passage here. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Wow. So, I have the mind of Christ. And I, the line that next comes to mind right out of our modern vocabulary, so ain't nobody telling me what to do. Okay, but that's not what he's saying. When it comes to the wisdom and knowledge of God, it has been given to you. The secrets have been fully disclosed. It's yours. And you now have the capacity to judge and discern rightly about all facets of life. Now, what's assumed here also is that others who have the mind of Christ and God himself who is the infinite mind can help you discern and understand the mind of Christ. So other believers, the Holy Spirit, God will judge. And later in Corinthians, Paul makes a very clear case that the assembled body of believers has the task of judging and discerning each other. What he makes very clear case for is that the natural man, people in the world, the thought leaders of our day, the political leaders of our day, even the religious leaders of our day who are of the world, of the natural man, have no ability whatsoever to judge you, to understand you, to discern correctly what it is that you're doing and not doing. Because they don't get your basic premise that God is God and he's redeeming the world through his son, Jesus Christ. They don't get it. And so they simply do not have the capacity to judge, to assess. Unfortunately, this often gets reversed 
And we claim to have the mind of Christ, but we permit the thought leaders of our day, the political leaders of our day, the religious leaders of our day, who have embraced the ideology of the world, to judge us and to critique us and to cause us to veer off the path from the wisdom of God that has been revealed. And what Paul is asserting with great confidence, if you hang your proverbial hat on Jesus Christ and you're going to come home to rest in him, his death and his resurrection, the simple message of the gospel, then you just hang your hat there and you rest and trust in the power of the gospel to put the world back to rights, including your own sin and turmoil and struggle. And let the psychologists of the day say what they will. Let the sociologists say what they will. Let the politicians say what they will. Let the religious leaders who denounce and reject the person of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, let them say what they will. They have no platform from which to judge you. Because they do not understand spiritual things. And if I can rephrase it in this way, I would say, if you're the church, be the church. And proclaim the message of the church. And don't let it phase you a bit when the press ridicules the church, when sociologists ridicule the community of faith, when psychologists claim all kinds of weird things about why people must believe in some kind of Jesus to, from 2,000 years ago that's going to sort out their mental problems. Uh, just don't worry. They don't, they, don't, they don't get it. They don't get it at all. They can't judge you. The Spirit of God has not given them the capacity to understand spiritual truth. Unfortunately, we tend to let them judge us and derail us and reshape us and influence our thinking and trade in the mind of Christ for the wisdom of the day. And Paul says that's exactly what the Corinthians are doing. They're taking the revealed wisdom of God and they're moving it aside for the wisdom of the age. And he says, what absolute and utter foolishness. And whenever you do that, the church fractures and fragments. And it happens over and over and over and over and continues to occur. What does it mean to have the mind of Christ? To have the mind of Christ is to know something about the content of God's mind, to know his plans, the reconciliation plan, to know its purposes. It is to go the way of the cross in all of life, to say no to the self, to say no to the voices of our age and to cast all our hope, all our confidence, all of our expectation to focus all of our longing on the Christ of the cross. That Jesus.
to listen and receive the wisdom of God. What does this cruciform mind, what does this cross-shaped mind, what does your cross-shaped life look like when you go to work? When you walk out of these doors, go out into your car, and go home. What does it look like for your dinner table conversation to be shaped by the cross? What does it look like for your leaving for work Monday morning to be shaped by the cross? What does it look like for your decisions when you decide where you're going to write a check to next, which bill you're going to pay, and how you're going to pay this, and how you're going to plan for tomorrow, and, and what you how does the cross of Jesus Christ give shape to those decisions? When someone lies about you, spreads, spreads a rumor about you, what does it look like for the cross to give shape to your responses? When you're struggling with darkness and down feelings, depression. What does it look like for the cross of Christ to inform that struggle? When you're fighting cancer, what does it look like for the cross of Jesus Christ to shape your soul, your mind, and your heart in that struggle. I can tell you it's different. It's different than natural man. It's very different than the way a natural man responds to relational conflicts, to physical ailments, to mental, emotional struggles, to fiscal decisions. It's very different. And I urge you to consider what does it look like? What does it look like for the mind of Christ the cross of Jesus Christ to deeply shape every facet of your life. Remember when it does and you cast all your weight on Jesus Christ the good news is that God takes care of such people. And no heathen people of any age has ever conceived of a God who would actually take care of those who placed their reliance on Him. That idea is the idea and the plan of the God of Israel, the God of the church, the God whose Son, Jesus Christ, came for us. A well-kept secret for thousands of years. And now it's been declared. Let's pray. Father, in your grace, you've prepared a plan. You've worked out the plan. And now you've disclosed the plan. We ask that by your spirit, you would continue the work you've begun of renewing, making new all creation. 
for our glory, but Lord, that our glory would point ultimately to your great, infinite goodness and glory. And the glory that is ours in us, radiating from us in increasing measure, would demonstrate you are a God of glory and grace. Teach us also what it means to live cross-shaped lives. We ask this through Christ. Amen.